<laughs> it's good to be back. It has been seven years since we were last here. And uh, the reason for that is, well, number one, we did seven-year terms for a number of years. And then after our kids all grew up and left the home, and uh, now they're coming back. But uh, we decided to go to 10, 12-week furloughs every three or four years. And uh, so we don't visit all of our churches every time we come back. And so the last furlough was about four years ago, before COVID. And uh, so I decided to wait until after COVID was done before coming back, because I didn't want to visit and not have any churches able to have you. You know how that was. And so the COVID is over, and so we're delighted to be back again and uh, meeting some of you and reacquainting ourselves with some of you. I'd like to take a few minutes and tell you about the ministry. Now, I'm going to go through uh, basically beginning with our family, because those of you who have been here for decades, you know all about our children when they were kids, and so we'll tell you about how they are doing now, then we're going to tell you a little bit about the ministries that God has called us to, and you can't go to a missionary presentation without a little bit about culture and what it's like to be in the country. I like to share about the country itself because it helps people who are here in America who perhaps have not visited every country in the world to know what it is that missionaries face as they serve God on the field so that they can be more intelligently praying for their missionaries. And so... We'll go ahead and do the slide presentation if we can. Like I say, I'm not used to not being in control. <laughs> so, uh, Thank you for the privilege of being here today and uh, in sharing a little bit about our ministry. We left for Japan in 1987. We joined EBM in 1984. And I just realized before we left to come back on this furlough, I was like, okay, this is 2023. We left. Next year is 40 years since we joined the mission board. I was surprised myself because it seems like Deb and I are newlyweds, you know. We uh, are more in love today than we were when we met or got married. And uh, so I, I liked her when I first met her. As a matter of fact, our story goes back to my freshman year in college at Bob Jones University. I was 17 years old when I came back to America to go to college. I came back to America with three goals in mind. One, get a good Bible school education. Two, find a cute wife. And three, go back to Japan as a missionary. And uh, so thankfully, God answered all three of those requests. And uh, together in 1987, we left for the field. And so uh, 40 years does not seem like 40 years at all. Of course, I plan to live to be, I was telling the missions committee, I plan to live to be about 120. And so I'm only about halfway there. So we've we got a long ways to go. Um, I'd like to tell you a little bit about the family, because God has blessed us with six children. Four of our kids were, well, two of our kids were born here in America, and uh, two of our kids were born in Japan, and two of our kids we adopted, and now we have 11 grandchildren with us in Japan and seven grandchildren here in America, and uh, so the kids that are in Japan, they're serving with us in the ministry, and uh, this is Stephanie, oh, look at that, it, PowerPoint did change the format a little bit, so if the family Y looks strange, it's not my fault, okay? <laughs> uh, but this is uh, Stephanie and Kyohei. Now, Kyohei is the pastor of the first church that we established, the Minoseki Grace Baptist Church. Uh, Kyohei began coming to church the first year of junior high school. We, our church sponsored a three-on-three -three basketball tournament and a 
basketball camp. Anybody ever heard of Swen Nader from the Lakers? Yeah, he's a real, real, like six foot seven, six foot eight, something like that. Amazing guy, good Christian. He came to Japan voluntarily and uh, did a basketball camp for us. Kyohei came to that camp, and then he found out that we had a basketball goal at the church, started coming to the church, and uh, he accepted Christ as Savior his first year of high school. And his third year of high school, he felt God calling him to be a pastor. And so he came to America, actually, went to Bob Jones University. He uh, did a little bit of bridge to English and then uh, finished Bob Jones in five years. Stephanie, our oldest daughter, came back a couple of years later. She finished her college degree in three years, and then she worked for two years, uh, got a master's degree in counseling, and then she came back to Japan uh, over the Christmas, New Year holiday, and uh, Debbie was telling me that it was like two weeks later they got married, and uh, so they have seven children now, and they are faithfully serving God. Uh, Kyohei and Stephanie both uh, provide for their own support as pastor uh, and pastor's wife in the church. They live at the church. We built the, the Minoseki Grace Baptist Church in 1993, and the upstairs is the living quarters, and the downstairs is the church. And so they live there. And so Kyohei, actually, as a side job, uh, is a professional photographer. And uh, Stephanie, as a side job, is an English teacher. And uh, they, they do so, they work voluntarily to be able to serve God uh, in Japan. And we're delighted that they are. Um, there's another why. <laughs> this is my daughter, Sharon. Uh, she actually married another young man from our ministry in Japan, only he was from the international church. We have an international church and a Filipino church. Uh, and so she, about five and a half years ago, she... Uh, was married to Noel that she met at the International Church, and they, Sharon wanted eight kids, and, uh, but she was 29 when she got married, and so she got busy, and uh, Sky, the oldest, uh, was one day shy of his fourth birthday when number four, Autumn, was born, and uh, so they have four kids, they might have five, I'm not sure, but I think she's given up on her dream to have eight. But Sharon serves at the Minoseki Grace Baptist Church with the children's ministry and the music program and hospitality. And she serves at the International Church as well on Sunday afternoons with, again, the children's programs and the music ministry and serving in hospitality and other areas as well. Our two adopted kids, Natalie and Andrew, they are still single. And Andrew is 30. He does have a girlfriend and he's thinking about settling down, but you know, they, they, they both came from a broken home. They were two and three years old when they had, we adopted them, and so they have a, a, a little bit more of a security issue when it comes to uh, deep, connected relationships, I think. And so they're uh, still single, but Danielle is living here in America, and she married a redneck, and uh, it's not an insult. He takes pride in the word redneck, so I don't feel shy saying it, but um, he loves working outside, and uh, he lives living out in the country. And uh, so he, he is actually more of a foreigner than all of the other kids. But my oldest married a Japanese. Our second married Eric. Our third married a Filipino. Our, my son, Nathan, he married a Puerto Rican. American, and so we have a very international family 
of course, and Nathan and Stephanie, yeah, we have two Stephanies in our family, but Nathan and Stephanie are looking forward to going back to Japan as missionaries next year, Lord willing, as they begin raising their support this year to go back. And uh, Nathan is excited about, he just finished his master's degree in counseling as well, and he's excited about going to Japan and establishing the very first uh, Christian counselor training center in uh, Kanazawa, uh, up north just a little bit. And they have four kids as well. It's funny because we have two granddaughters, one each here in America, and the rest are all grandsons, and we have two grandsons in Japan, one each, and the rest are all granddaughters. Uh, I don't know if it's in the water or what it is, but... Our missionary staff, of course, we are blessed in our individual ministries with uh, working together with Anita, who is from the Philippines, and she came over to Japan as a, to serve God as a missionary through an orphanage ministry, and then when the missionary that ran the orphanage left, she came over and began working with us, and she's been with us for about 25 years. She's a single lady missionary, she works in hospitality primarily, and she's a camp cook and uh, works behind the scenes in so many different ways, and we really appreciate the fact that God called and needed to work with us. Six months ago, Ali came. Ali is uh, working in the children's program while she learns the Japanese language and uh, determines where it is that God is calling her to serve. We have IBM missionaries in Chiba, near the Tokyo area, as well as in Sakahogi, and so she's trying to discern God's will as to how she would serve and where she would serve. My mom and dad, they left for Japan in 1965 with the four of us boys, and I had two sisters that were born in Japan, and one sister that was adopted, and so my youngest uh, naturally born son and my youngest daughter, they are both 31 years of age, and they have an aunt who is also 31 years of age, because dad adopted Megumi the same year that uh, our adopted and naturally born son were born. Dad is 88, and he's still serving with mom faithfully in Japan, in Yamagata, way out in the country. Dad loves to do tract distribution. You see, if you're working out in the country, in Japan especially, then it's difficult to get people to come to church. And so years ago, Dad decided that if I can't get them to come to me, I'm going to go to them. And so he writes these tracts, and he has them printed up. He does about 30,000 at a time, and then he goes around to the entire area, passing out these tracts, about 100 a day as his goal. And he and Mom go out there, and they distribute these tracts. And when the 30,000 are gone, then they print up more and go out and start it all over again. And he's been doing that for years and years, and uh, he's been so faithful. That's that's the one word that would define my mom and dad is faithful. And he's still serving God at 88 years of age. And uh, this is our first church, the Minoseki Grace Baptist Church. And uh, we also share in another Japanese church, which is the Central Baptist Church in Tajimi. It was pastored by a BBF missionary who was in Japan until he was 87 years of age and actually died in Japan. And... Uh, we actually had his funeral service at the Sakahogi Church, and uh, being in Japan, of course, he was cremated, and uh, so his bones are still at the church, actually. We just we were just telling the missions committee, we just purchased a uh, land for a grave site in Japan, and so we'll be able to put his bones there eventually as well. But the Taijimi Church, it's just a few people, usually between four and eight people will come on a Sunday. And uh, we drive about 45 minutes to get there. I preach there once or twice a month. And uh, you might say, well, why do you drive all that way for just four or five people? 
And the answer is because God cares about the individual just as much as he cares about the multitude. The story of this, the Samaritan woman at the well is an indication of Jesus' heart for the individual. And uh, so we're delighted to be able to participate in that as well. We have the Grace Community Family Fellowship, and I'm sorry the words are all messed up on this. Uh, PowerPoint and Keynote don't talk very well together, evidently. But the Grace Community Family Fellowship is one of our Filipino ministries that started from our Sakahogi Church Filipino ministry, and it's in the city of Kani, and uh, we have the privilege of sharing in that ministry as well. And then we have the, just built seven years ago, we completed the International Grace Baptist Church, and it's, this was just an amazing blessing from God. We had been praying for several years, actually, about land, and we actually found some land after we had saved enough money and been praying for God providing. We started looking and we found some land, negotiated for about a year, and somebody else bought the land. And as well, we were, and so we found some other land and uh, somebody else bought that land as well while we were in the process of negotiating. Twice that happened and twice we found some land and we were in the process of trying to acquire that land. And uh, the one property... So we had to talk with the head of the community that the land was going to be purchased in. And we did. And he says, that's great. We'd love to have the church here. But, you know, we, I can't make that decision. Can you meet with all the heads of the community? So we're like, sure. So we met with all the heads of the communities. And then they all said, oh, that's wonderful that we would love to have a church here. But we can't make the decision. Can you meet with the, the entire community? And we said, sure, no problem. And so it took six months before the community meeting was supposed to take place. So we waited the six months. And uh, then we met with the entire, about 150 people were gathered in this room. And I shared our burden and what we were like wanting to do, and everybody said, that's wonderful, we'd love to have the church in our community, and then the owner of the land decided not to sell it, and so, uh, and that happened twice, too, where the owner of the land, we tried to, the next property, we tried to get rezoned, and the owner of the land, well, the, actually, the uncle of the owner of the land went and pulled the zoning application without our knowledge, and so, but the thing is, I'm not saying that to say, poor us, look what happened to us, no, what, I, the, my point is this, God has three answers to prayer, I believe. And obviously the one is what we hear most often, or we want to hear most often, that is we pray and God answers, and God gives us the desires of our hearts. But sometimes God, we pray and God says, yes, I, I think that's a good idea and I'd love to give that to you, but now it's not the time, so wait a little while and I'll give it to you in due time. And most people think, okay, the third answer is no, you can't have that. But I think the third answer is not no. The third answer is, I got a much better plan for you. Trust me. And that's where trusting God's omnipotent wisdom comes in. And so every time one of these land purchases would fall through, I'd tell the congregation, guys, God has something so much better in store for us. And we would look forward to what was next. And we'd work really, really hard towards it. And it would fall through. And man, God must have something so much better in store for us. And he did. Because at Christmas eight years ago, we walked onto this property. The realtor showed us this property. It had already been for sale for four years. Remember, we'd been shifting, negotiating with all these other properties for four years. It had been on sale for four years, and nobody bought it. <laughs> it was in an area where land was going for about a, that size was going for about a million dollars. And uh, the owners wanted about $300,000 in today's uh, current exchange rate. The owners wanted about $300,000 for the land. And uh, as soon as we walked on the property, my brother and I looked at it. We're like, this is it. This is 
absolutely perfect. Had about 40 parking spaces already there. Had a building already there that we could transform into a church building while we were building our new building. And just amazing. We just knew that's where God wanted us. And uh, so we said, yeah, we would like to make an offer. And so the realtor says, well, how much you want to offer? And I was thinking that it was going to be $300,000, you know, but the realtor says, how much you want to offer? I'm like, oh, we can negotiate. Okay, well, how much do you think we should offer? And she's like, I don't know how much you want to offer. We're like, I don't know how much you think we should offer. She says, well, why don't you write down $100,000 and see what happens? And we're like, okay. So we filled out all the paperwork and turned it in. Nothing for two weeks. And after two weeks, we got the answer. And the owner said, we'll sell it to you for $100,000. And so God, God works miracle after miracle in that way. And you can see we still have two tennis courts left. We park on the one. We have the recreation for the children in the other. And uh, the International Grace Baptist Church is located at this location. We built the church building ourselves. And we still, even today, we still have work days once a month where all the church folks come out and help keep the property clean and, and uh, build new things. We just built a children's playhouse and uh, we have about 48 kids who are members of the international, ch- children who are members of the international church. Most of them were born to young people that grew up in our church, and we had the privilege of marrying and watching them grow in the Lord. So it's been exciting. Uh, we have the, on Sunday mornings, we have the Filipino Grace Baptist Church that meets at this location. And on Sunday afternoons, we have the International Grace Baptist Church that meets at the same location. And on Saturday nights, we also have a Brazilian ministry. And each one of these is led by national believers that God has blessed us with. And we are delighted to see God answer prayers, as I mentioned, in so many unbelievable ways. And, you know, our church originally had seats like this. Um, but they were cheap little things that we had picked up at a recycle store. And uh, so we had decided that we would like to have pews, but they're like $3,000 each, you know. And so we were praying about it. And one of our faithful church members, Fabio, he's a Brazilian guy who, he was actually saved in our ministry. He and his wife were both saved in our ministry. They came from a Catholic background and they were saved in our ministry. And so they've been growing like crazy. And uh, so he owns a company in Japan and he and his, one of his employees, they're driving back from Tokyo and there's a recycle, what we call a recycle shop. It's a place where you can buy used stuff, surplus stuff. And uh, it's where we buy most of our stuff. But anyway, <laughs> so he said, let's stop by and see what God has for us, shall we? And she said, okay. So they stopped by this store, and uh, he went to the back of the store, and they were unloading from the truck these pews. And so he called me, and he says, hey, check this out. And he showed me on a video messenger, video call. He says, you want them? And I'm like, well, take them. And so they loaded them back out of the store again, and we were able to buy 18 of these uh, pews for $400 total. And uh, in that way, God has been answering prayers in unbelievable ways, and the church has grown, and we're just excited about what God is doing in the country of Japan. Fellowship is one of the key aspects of our ministries. Um, you know, a lot of churches, you have people who come to church a little bit late and leave before the singing is over, and they've done church. Uh, we, we feel like loving is all, uh, loving God and loving others is what God has called us to do, and so our congregation... COVID accepted, of course, but our congregation just loves to spend time together, so we'll have an hour and a half church service and then three hours of fellowship afterwards, and it's just a fantastic uh, blessing. The kids and the teenagers love to sing and uh, to go to children's church programs, and it's just been fantastic to be a part of it all. In December, we had two young men who had been assistant pastors at the church 
Their father, Leonardo, uh, was a pastor who had led our Minocambo Filipino church service. And about 11 years ago on Valentine's Day, he suddenly passed away from pancreatic cancer. He was going in for his first treatment, and on the day he was supposed to be treated, he suddenly went downhill and passed away within seven hours. And uh, so there's another Filipino pastor in our congregation who took over the ministry, and then he felt God calling him to help in another ministry in Nagoya. And so these two young men, on December 25th, we had the privilege of ordaining them to the gospel ministry. And so they and their families are now serving God on Sunday mornings at the Filipino Grace Baptist Church. We also have a Brazilian ministry, as I mentioned, on Saturday night that meets, and uh, that's being led. God brought to us a wonderful Brazilian pastor who lives in Nagoya but comes in on Saturday nights and preaches to the Brazilian congregation of, I think, usually between 50 to 70 people who come. Uh, They meet downstairs in the fellowship area because the Filipino uh, uh, worship team practices on Saturday night at the same time. I have the privilege of teaching at the Chubugaku University, which is a Christian university in Seki, and uh, it's only about half a mile from our house. And I can walk there, I don't, but I can walk there, it's so close. But uh, they asked us to teach about nine years ago. The great thing about this is it's a Christian university, most of the kids are unsaved, and so we have the opportunity of ministering to these people, and we meet them years later in the city, and they know who we are, and we have opportunities of uh, continuing our ministry with them. But also, the school has international students that come. Uh, A lot of kids this year from... Uh, Malaysia and from Indonesia and a number of uh, Muslim-based countries. And uh, this past Christmas, for example, we had the privilege of uh, telling the Christmas story about why it is that Jesus came and uh, what he can do for them. And international students who have never heard the message of the gospel hearing the gospel in Japan Well, the Japanese culture is, of course, a a, a little bit different from America. And uh, if you come to Seki, we live in Seki. And uh, the Capiche family came from here, I think, but uh, that was years ago. And uh, if you'd like to come visit us, October is the best time to come because Seki is a cutlery uh, town. Now, I know your pastor loves knives. We have the greatest handmade knives in the world. I mean, they're artisans that make these knives, and they'll spend months creating one knife. Of course, you have to pay like $3,000 to buy it, but <laughs> they have incredible works of art that are pocket knives. And so anyway, these, these factories, they don't make swords anymore because not much use for swords anymore. And so there's only about maybe 20 artisans who still do handcrafted swords, but everybody else makes cutlery, and so they'll sell their cutlery on the streets uh, once a year in, in October. That's the cutlery festival. If you come to Japan, you don't want to miss out on the food. The food is fabulous. How many of you like sushi? Anybody like sushi? Oh, look at that. Half the people here like sushi. How many of you don't like sushi? Anybody don't? Oh, that's the rest of you. Okay. <laughs> well, some people who tried it didn't like it. So, <laughs> But sushi is great. Sushi used to be a really, really expensive item. As a matter of fact, traditional sushi, you would go in and there would be no prices. You just order what it is you wanted, and the, the chef would know how much each item cost. And then after you finished, you'd ask for a bill, and he'd tell you how much it is. A friend of mine 
took me to, to one of these places years ago and because uh, I was leaving to go back to America to, to go to college. And so he said, I'll take you out for sushi. So we did the traditional sushi thing and uh, didn't know how much it was going to be or anything. And then as we were leaving, the owner says, that'll be $150. Right? <laughs> Remember, this is like 50 years ago. So uh, it was... It was uh, now, now they don't do that. Now they have what they call conveyor belt sushi. Anybody had, ever had conveyor belt sushi before? Yeah, the, oh, have you? All right. They have them in America, too, I understand. But um, the, the chef makes it in the kitchen. He puts it on a conveyor belt. It goes all the way around everybody. During COVID, they stopped doing that. And they just made, they still have the conveyor belts, but you order it, and then it comes straight to you. So that's sushi. And uh, we also have a Korean dish, yakiniku, that's fantastic. You cook it yourself on a barbecue grill. We have ramen, which is, of course, the number one dish in Japan. Now, most people who think of ramen, you think of these 25-cent packs that you survived on in college, right? But no, no, this is a gourmet dish. Uh, and uh, since we have international ministries, we also have potluck dinners. And so we get to eat a lot of international foods as well. This is what you call lechong. It is a traditional Filipino dish that they cook with the skin, the pork skin on the meat. And they also eat the pork skin. Evidently, that's their favorite part. Um, and it's, it's considered an honor to cut the lechon once they've cooked it. And last December, um, some of our families invited me to come over and uh, partake with them. And so they said, hey, you cut the lechon. And so I'm like, uh, I don't know what I'm doing, but okay. So I got the knife, you know, and I stuck it into the meat. And it goes, you know, like a bag of potatoes just being smashed, you know. And everybody suddenly goes, ah, oh, I love that sound. I'm like, it must be a cultural thing. But they love eating that, that hard skin. It's their favorite part. I like soft meat on the inside personally. But anyway, we get to eat a lot of different foods. If you are in Japan, raw fish is, of course, the number one food you're going to want to enjoy. The Japanese restaurants are different from American restaurants. Now, we have a lot of restaurants that are the same. We have McDonald's, Kentucky Fried Chicken. As a matter of fact, does anybody know when everybody in Japan eats Kentucky Fried Chicken? You do. How, when is it? That's right. It's not Christmas Day. It's Christmas Eve, December 24th. Everybody has to eat Kentucky Fried Chicken. It's, most people don't know why, but they do it anyway. And the Christmas cake. They'll all order a Christmas cake to have on Christmas Eve. Uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken and Christmas cake. But anyway, uh, a, a traditional restaurant will have one chef and he cooks all your food right in front of you. And uh, it's usually healthy. Does anybody know who, what country has more centenarians, more people over 100 years of age than any other country? Anybody know what country it is? Believe it or not, it's not Japan. Believe it or not, it's America. I was surprised too, because I thought, yeah, Japan's got more, than, more people over 100 years of age. Um, <laughs> In where the campsite is, the land where the campsite is, um, the first person that turned 100, the government gave them like $8,000 to celebrate. You know? And then a couple of years later, somebody else turned 100. And before you know it, there's like five people that was over 100 years old in this town of 4,000 people. And they're like, oh, no, we can't do this anymore. <laughs> but uh, Japan has a higher percentage-wise number of people over 100 years of age than any other country in the world except for one smaller country, probably because of what they eat and their, their exercise. Uh, you, it's not uncommon to see people who are hunched over who can barely walk uh, outside taking a walk and even continuing to work the rice fields. It used to be, when I arrived in Japan, there was basically one car for every two families in Japan. That has changed now, and they have uh, two or three cars per family. Uh, but 
restaurants that were built years and years ago, is they look like this, and so there's no parking. You would walk down a small, narrow area and decide what restaurant you want to eat in and then go and uh, eat there. Usually, they are based, most of them are based on ramen, of course. <laughs> Japanese houses are a little different than you would have houses here in America. Uh, they're post and beam with traditional Japanese housing is built with... Uh, basically four by four posts that are interlocking, don't need nails, just interlocking four by four posts. And in between these posts, they put bamboo, they tie slats of bamboo in a grid, and then they'll take mud and coat both sides of the bamboo with mud, and that hardens and that becomes your wall. And so that's the way they would build a traditional house. Uh, And wealthy people, they would build large houses like this, always with tile roofs like you see. It's a traditional image of a house. If you go into a Japanese house, they always, every one of them will have a shoe parking lot right in front of the, as you open the door and step inside. And uh, believe it or not, the place where you put your shoes, you open the door, you're allowed to step into that area. And as long as you don't take your shoes off, it's not classified as having entered the person's house. Uh, And uh, very rarely will a Japanese actually invite you to come into their house. Uh, If they do, you have to take your shoes off and then put slippers on, walk down the hallway, and then take your slippers off because you're going to walk onto the straw mat floors. Japanese, traditionally, they use one room for both dining and family time and sleeping. And so they'll have a, a table like this that they'll get out, put it on the straw mat floors, and then when it's time to sleep, they'll take the table, move it to the side, get the futons out of the closet, lay them on the floor, and then the family will sleep together in that way. Uh, They have paper doors that divide the hallways from the rooms traditionally. And uh, if if you want to know what the paper doors are like, you can, out on the table in the back there, there is a small miniature version of a Japanese paper door. That's actually something, I made the paper to that little paper door. In Minol, that's a city next to Seki, uh, they they have like an 800-year history of paper making. And it's a fantastic art that's still going on. I uh, placed those leaves inside the paper and then made the paper, and uh, so you can see the decorative thing. But that's how they make their doors, and they'll glue the paper onto the wooden doors. And naturally, you know, the children will <laughs> poke their fingers through it so the paper does get ruined, and it's not too hard to take all the paper off and put new paper on, and they're good as new once again. And uh, the, then if you open the sliding doors, then the, you have a view of, and at least in the more well-off houses, you'll have a view of the back garden, uh, traditional Japanese garden as well. This is a Japanese toilet. Don't ask me how to use it. Uh, I'll tell you privately, okay? <laughs> and uh, this is a Japanese bathtub. They would traditionally, they would fill the tub up with hot water, and then they would use that little dipper to dip water out of the bath and pour it upon themselves, wash off, rinse off, and then get into the tub. Now, the thing that is different from America is they would use the same water for every member of the family. And uh, if you had, you know, grandpa and grandma, mom and dad, and three kids who lived there, then by number seven, yeah, the water is not exactly as clean as it was. Uh, Hey, pop quiz. Who do you think is the last, traditionally, who's the last person to take a bath in a Japanese family? Anybody? The grandfather? That's very noble. 
It's the mother. <laughs> Always the mother is the one that has to sacrifice, right? Uh, she makes sure everybody else. Now, now uh, recently, fathers have been working later. Uh, and so when the father gets home after everybody else has already had a bath, then he gets to take the last bath, of course. But traditionally, it's the mother. Uh, in fact, bathing is such an important ritual in Japan that they have natural hot springs. It's a volcano-based island. And so even today, like... An hour away from where we live, there is a number of hotels, and they're simply based upon these outdoor... Uh, they're private. They're separated between the men on one side, women on the other, and they have walls around them so that nobody can see in. But uh, it's, it's, uh, one of their traditions is to go there and to wash off first and then to get into the hot spring water and relax and soak. And uh, it's a part of the Japanese culture as well. Japanese kids do something different from America in that all the Japanese kids, elementary school, junior high school, high school, are responsible for cleaning their own classrooms and hallway and bathrooms. And uh, yeah, there's the kids who are cleaning. Now, not every kid works as hard as the other. Some of them are very industrious, and some of them try to get, off, get away with not doing anything, as you could imagine. But um, they, they are at least in theory, as a group responsible for taking care of their own, the cleanliness every day of their own rooms. And I think it's a pretty good idea, actually. If you go to Kyoto, you'll see a lot of old houses and idolatry still very much part of everyday life. Now, this particular picture, you can't really see. If you look at that sign, that wooden sign that's above Debbie's head, um, you probably won't be able to make it out because you can't see it, but there is a store that is in this 100-year-old building, uh, and the name of the store is Starbucks. <laughs> it's right here in the middle of downtown. Starbucks is very, very popular in Japan. As a matter of fact, if you go to Kyoto, Deb and I went to Kyoto because COVID makes it impossible to travel overseas. We went to Kyoto a number of times during COVID because the hotel's rooms were like $30 a room. So anyway, uh, and we would walk down this main street and we started counting. And we counted 13 Starbucks between about two miles of walking on this uh, street. So they're very popular in Japan. Anybody know anime? Japanese anime? You know, don't you? Okay. Uh, do you know who this is? Totoro, that's correct. Uh, the actual pronunciation is Totoro, but in <laughs> America we call it My Neighbor Totoro. And uh, there are famous cartoon artists that uh, make these uh, really, really good uh, movies. And uh, so young people today in America young people, uh, have a fascination with uh, Japanese animation. This was one of the characters in a movie, uh, in an animation movie that they placed in Kyoto as a part of an attraction at a bus stop. Speaking of public transportation, if you are on a train in Japan, here's a little secret for you. No eating, no drinking, and no talking on the train. Yeah. Now, you're allowed to talk quietly to the person that's right next to you, uh, but no talking across the aisle at all, and you're allowed to eat, it's like an airplane, if you're, if you're on a train that has a tray that comes down in the seat in front of you and it's a long distance, you're allowed to eat on, and drink on the train, but otherwise if it's a daily commute, it's very rude to eat or drink or to talk while you're on the train. Seki, as I mentioned, is a cutlery town, and if you come in October, besides the cutlery festival, you'll also get to see these swordsmen who have 
practiced for decades the craft of sword fighting. Now, they won't fight each other with swords, but they will do demonstrations of cutting through things. And what you see here is a master swordsman getting ready to cut through. It's a bamboo pole that's wrapped in straw mat. And uh, it's on, you can see the stand. It's just on a metal stand. And if you're really, really good, you can draw the sword, make two cuts, and put your sword back. And that straw mat that you see there, it'll just sit there. It won't move. And then you'll see and it'll fall apart. And uh, that's what we observed with this particular uh, master swordsman. He was the teacher of all of them. There's about 30 of them who were there practicing that day. Idolatry, as I mentioned, is still, still very common in Japan. The two main religions in Japan are Shintoism, which is the national religion, and Buddhism, which is the Buddhist uh, ancestor worship ritual. And so people, when the children are young, they will dedicate their kids at three five and seven, three-year-old girls, five-year-old boys, seven-year-old girls. They'll take them to the shrines and dedicate them. And then quite often, marriage ceremonies are Christian because they're popular, uh, European style. And so they'll have chapels where they do the weddings. And then when they die, the Buddhists have the funerals. It's the, it's the veneration of the ancestors and the ancestor worship. And so uh, many people then become Buddhists. And it's not unusual to see people who have Shinto god shelves in one corner of the room and then a Buddhist ancestor shelf in the same room, actually. And idolatry is very real. Now, you know, we, we have idolatry here in America as well because idolatry technically is anything that we place in a position of more importance than God and our relationship with God. And uh, so we do have our share of idolatry here in America, although we don't worship idols the way they do in Japan. And in Japan, you'll see people who are walking down the street and they'll go to the shrines and they'll put their hands together and you'll see them along the streets praying to these gods. A lot of, lot of amazing history. I wish I could take time and tell you about the Japanese history. But if you go to Kyoto, you'll be able to see these hundreds of, of five, 600-year-old buildings uh, still exhibited today. Now, one of our other ministries is Camp Rafaeda. Camp Rafaeda, we bought the land in 2000 and started building. And uh, it is a campsite that will house about 120 people. And we have, uh, as I was mentioning to the missions committee, we have more children who are saved during the one week of camp at Camp Rafaeda than all of our other ministries throughout the rest of the year combined. And uh, we have an outdoor chapel and a hub and then about four other buildings that are used for sleeping. And of course, because of COVID this year, we ate outside in the outdoor chapel as well. And uh, Debbie is the chief cook. Anita, that I mentioned a minute ago, helps Deb with the cooking at the campsite. And uh, we, our children work as camp counselors and speakers and teachers. And it's uh, not a family affair, but it is wonderful to be able to share ministry with family and we use Camp Rafaida for missionary retreats. We've had a couple of men's retreats and uh, ladies' missionary retreats. And then we have Missionary Kids Camp, MK Camp, uh, that we invite children, young people from all over Japan to come to the camp where we try to encourage them to be faithful to God and to serve God where they are planted. And so this is Camp Rafaida, and we appreciate your prayers all these years as God has answered so many of them in such a gracious way. And uh, without your prayers, none of this would be possible. Without your fin uh, sacrificial financial giving through his missions, those who hear the gospel 
would ever have the opportunity to do so. And so I want to say from the bottom of our hearts, thank you so much for all these years of your faithfulness in serving God by serving those who are serving God on the field. Uh, we have a river about five minutes away from Camp Rafaeda where the kids will go swimming and uh, they risk life and limb to jump off the rocks out there. <laughs> but it's just a fantastic time, place that God provided. I wish I had time to tell you the story of Camp Rafaeda and how God provided uh, the land as well as the buildings. And uh, only one building did we ever have money for when we started building it. And uh, my, one of my aunts, she had an inheritance, and so she wanted to give some of the inheritance, and so she heard we were getting ready to build the hub, and so she gave $30,000. Uh, and with that money, we were able to start building the hub. And, but the thing is, every single time we started a building, God provided the materials and God provided the funds. And so it's wonderful to be able to live by faith and see God work in the lives of these kids uh, through the various ministries that God's called us to in addition to Camp Rafaeda. So thank you so much for your prayers for us as we have served God on the field all these years. I'd like to close with a very short personal testimony. Um, Paul made the statement in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because the power of God is salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile or the Greek, and we know that people need the Lord. We sing about it. And we know that without Christ, there is no life. And so we go. And we are not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because we know that it's the power of God to salvation. Paul went on three missionary journeys. And as he went on these three missionary journeys, as he was coming back from his last missionary journey, he was warned, hey, you're going to be killed. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to be imprisoned. You're going to be suffered greatly. Don't go, don't go, don't go. And everywhere he went, he would say, don't worry. I understand all this, but I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God to salvation. I want to continue faithfully serving God. When I was a kid, there was a time when I actually didn't want to be a missionary. In fact, it's the last thing I wanted to be because, not because I didn't like, like it, I loved serving God on the field, I loved ministering with my parents, I started teaching Sunday school when I was 12, and leading uh, singing when I was 13, and actually had my own youth group when I was 16 years old, and that's how God used, uh, burdened my heart for missions, but when I was younger, uh, I didn't want to be a missionary, because, well, two reasons, we didn't get a lot of money, so sometimes we didn't have enough to eat, six kids, you know, and... Uh, also, all the missionary stories are about, well, you know, missionary suffering. You know, like the lion that jumps out and tears your shoulder off, or the guy that dies of a heat stroke in the boat going to a village to share the gospel, or the cobras that spit the poison in your eyes and then bite you and you die in agonizing death. Oh, and the scorpions! You read the stories about the missionaries that put on their shoes, there are scorpions in their shoes. I mean, they were all horrible. And being missionaries, my parents always exposed us to these missionary stories. And I just knew that if I, uh, if I said, Lord, I'll be a missionary, they'd say, I want you to go to Africa. And I'm like, I don't want to go to Africa. That's where they'll die. <laughs> so when I was 13, God spoke to my heart through a message my dad was actually preaching from Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah said, when God said, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Isaiah said, here, my Lord, send me. And I realized it was wrong for me to say, God, I don't want to. So I said, all right, Lord, whatever you want me to do, that's what I'm willing to do. And when I became older and uh, went to school and got married and we were getting ready to leave for the field, I was reading 
Paul's confession in Acts chapter 20, where he said, where he said, and it's not changing, <laughs> none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear to myself, so that I might finish my course with joy. And the ministry that I've received of the Lord Jesus to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. And I noticed from this passage, Paul's confession. Remember, he knew that he was going to be going to Jerusalem and being persecuted. He knew that he was going to suffer. But he said, none of these things move me. I'm not going to let, let anything difficult in this life bother me. And, as a matter of fact, neither count I my life dear to myself, he said. I don't count my life precious. And the reality is, you know, <laughs> Japanese houses tend to be small, the streets are a little narrow, and the societal pressure tends to be a little bit greater than here in America. We have independence here in America. We have individualism. We have large houses. You know, I've been in living rooms in American houses that were as large as the houses that we rented and lived in in Japan. <laughs> the entire house, you know. Uh, our, our rooms that our kids slept in were, some of them were maybe 20 square feet. <laughs> and, uh, but the reality is, if you're going to serve God, then you can't count your life dear to yourself. Why? Because we want to finish our course with joy. And the reality is, there is no greater joy in life than being in the center of God's will. And you have to experience it to know the truth that there is no greater joy in life than being completely in the center of God's will. And for us, that will was, I want to finish my ministry, which I've received the Lord Jesus to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. Many, many years ago, when Stephanie was in the third grade, she made friends. A little girl named Hitomi. And Hitomi started coming to church, and she, was, she accepted Christ as Savior when she was in the fourth grade. And she was faithful. She'd come to Sunday school, Sunday morning services, and uh, worship God. And uh, when she was in the sixth grade, she said that she wanted to be baptized. And uh, 12 years old, I said to her, well, go ask your parents. And so well, her parents are Buddhists. Her parents are unsafe. Why would you tell her to go ask her parents about something that is her personal faith? And the answer is Japan is very much a group-oriented society. Not to mention the fact that the Bible admonition to children obey your parents doesn't just extend to Christians. It extends to those who have parents. And so we say, go ask your parents. And so she went and asked her parents. And at 12 years of age, they said, you know, we think you're too young. We don't think that you should get baptized. And so she came back and said, they said no. And so we said, well, let's wait then, shall we? And so she did. Well, wouldn't you know, God honored her submission, her humility, and they were able to watch her grow in her faith. And when she was 16 years of age, her parents came to her and said, we know that you're faithful, we know that you're a Christian, and if you'd like to, you, we think you should be baptized. And so she did, she got baptized, and she wanted to serve God as well, so she came back to America, went to Bob Jones University too. And she graduated in four years, and she met a young man there. And uh, they, <laughs> together, had three kids. And then they came back to Japan to serve God 
uh, as they, they work and teach English to earn their own living. Uh, Hitomi works at uh, the city hall, and uh, they're there working with my brother in Nagoya, doing what they can to share the gospel with the Japanese people as well. Well, the end of last year, after a wonderful summer, they always come and help with the summer camps and bring their kids, and Hitomi and John are both very faithful in that. The end of last year, Hitomi found out that she has cancer. As a matter of fact, you know, evidently there's three kinds of breast cancer, the less aggressive and the, the little more serious and then the really, really serious kind of cancer. And so the doctor did a biopsy and he, they had to wait a couple of weeks for her to find out what kind it was. And the doctor was startled when he came back and said, she has all three kinds of cancer. Very, very unusual. And uh, the reality is we're not sure she's going to make it. She's about to receive her fourth chemo treatment this week. And uh, we're praying that God heals her miraculously. She wants to raise her kids for the Lord. She wants to continue serving God. But the reality is, it might be God's will that she be taken home. But here's the beauty of the truth. Were it not that you as a church supported missions, and we were able to partner together to go to Japan and share the gospel, he told me I might never have heard the message of salvation by grace through faith. And if she died, she would spend eternity apart from God, suffering forever. But because you gave and because you prayed, God did a miraculous thing. And I often say, you know, if it was just this one kid that got saved as a result of all these years of ministry, it'd be worth it. But God has done so much more, touching the lives of so many Japanese people. And it's because of your faithfulness in giving and praying and sharing with the needs of those who go. So from the bottom of our hearts, we want to say thank you so much for your part in helping us to testify of the gospel of the grace of God in Japan. Let's pray, shall we? Father in heaven, thank you so much for the privilege of being here today. Thank you for this wonderful church and the wonderful ministries and, and the way that they've grown and everyone seems to be so excited about loving you and serving you. And it's a delight to come back and to see that. And I pray that you would bless this church, bless the members who desire to serve you with their lives. And I pray that you would stir up so many more with the needs of the world and the needs of our neighbors to hear, to be saved. Thank you so much for the privilege of serving you together. We pray these things with gratitude in our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen.